Heavenly Father, oh, I thank you, Lord, for the word. I thank you for these moments to be able to reflect on it together. I ask God for your spirit to be with us, uh, to bring us to a place of deeper understanding and trust in you. Uh, God, I ask also that your spirit uh, move us to a response that's transformative to our life, to our communities, to those around us as well. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, Daniel chapter 1, last week, right? Um, if you haven't had a chance to look at that, you're welcome to go online and have a gander at our podcast or on our website as well. But Daniel chapter 1 last week, as part of a series on resilience, we looked at determination, the tremendous grit that it would take to be Daniel in the situation that he was. And the thing that he showed, which he tried to kind of demonstrate his grit was, was by being faithful with the diet that he had and against all odds because he had no control over anything else in his life. He said, let me at least control this and let me do this as honorably and as faithfully to God as I can. And that's what Daniel did in the last chapter, chapter one. This week, if you've been studying it all through Daily Walk, which I really encourage you to do because that's one way to be engaged in the journey as well and, and to prepare yourselves through here. This week, we're looking at Daniel chapter two. And this is where you kind of get the idea that we're starting to understand a little of the journey that I mentioned last week, how the revolution starts because the church sometimes goes astray from God and God has to just gently nudge the church and say, could you come back? And when he nudges, it's pretty radical and he causes us to, to come back and say, a revolution must start. That revolution could be anything in your life, including that you decide once and for all that you are indeed going to follow Jesus. And by following Jesus, you have to be determined, you have to have the grit to say, I actually accept this, I'm going to trust Jesus, and there are consequences to that, and I will go wherever Jesus calls me. Whatever he asks of me, that's what I will do. Well, Daniel 2 is the time now where he, the story starts to open up and to let us into the little inside of prophecy for the first time. In Daniel 1, we just talked about the story, the setting. We know that it's a terrible situation, but we're going to get into prophecy right now in Daniel chapter 2. And this is where we, we grow with some of our questions about what this happens. Note that this is not Daniel's prophecy. This is actually uh, something that happens to somebody else. It's going to be 40 years before Daniel has his own vision and his own prophecy that he needs to share that God has laid through him. This one here is going to take place through King Nebuchadnezzar, and as the prophecy unfolds, it will take us to a place that I hope will take us to a place of deep trust and understanding with them. Now, everybody, well, maybe everybody, I th probably a lot of you have seen how prophecy has been abused and misused by other people, right? Maybe you've seen like a, a leaflet that's come through your door and, uh, and it's got all sorts of scary animals on it and, and people are saying, hey, come and look at this, uh, this, you know, this bear with three ribs in its mouth and, or, or the famous one that I heard an evangelist share. An evangelist is a person who basically preaches uh, in different situations all over the world and tries to encourage people to follow Christ and he said that they had advertised a series on Revelation and they had this, uh, this tiger and this, this uh, prostitute sitting on this tiger, basically a woman not wearing a lot of clothing. And so this man came along to the series and he walked into the building and then asked, where was the tiger, especially where was the woman? 
that's what he came to see, you know, and it was just a surprise to him as to what it was really all about, and these were all metaphors and symbols and not the reality, and he went through his own journey trying to understand that. There are others, of course, that when they see prophecy, they, they start to spend more time focusing on what they think the prophecy is supposed to mean for their preparation for the end of the world. And so they will go get the bunkers. Have you seen this? You've met people like this? They'll get the bunkers and they'll get the fried chick veggie links. And, and if you don't know what that is, it's food that lasts forever. <laughs> just maybe because it's not food, but, it, but it's just, it's there. And they, they get all these tins and they build their bunkers up. I've seen adverts where people have in a magazine and it'll say, uh, buy my house, you know, $400,000. It is ready for the last days. It's one of those last days houses. It's a house where you're out in the middle with no power, you know, just water well and, and, and just you will survive. And, and so people go and they start to think that that's what prophecy is supposed to drive you towards, to running to some kind of bunker and buying tons of fried chick uh, and living out there. And they seem to miss what the intention of prophecy is truly about, which is pointing you to Jesus Christ. Because believe me, I believe the world's coming to an end, all right? I do. I believe the world's coming to an end. I believe that God will restore this planet. I believe that Jesus is going to come back. He will restore this planet. It will be amazing what he's going to do. But I don't believe that when that moment comes, if I am alive at that moment, that as terrible things start to take place, I'm going to be thinking to myself in a corner, like, yes. I, I can recite this particular verse now, and I know exactly what the bear meant right now, and I'm going to be thinking, Jesus, hold me. That's what I want. I want to hold on to God. And that's what I'm going to be praying for all the time, because my faith and my trust is not in my knowledge, but in my understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And when prophecy takes you there, you are in a much stronger place. Because you start to live life differently, because your trust is not in how much you know, but actually how much Jesus knows and how little faith you have, but that little faith is like a mustard seed that he can grow inside you and your trust can grow inside there. So there are lots of great texts inside the Bible that try to articulate this, and we don't have time today to go through all of them, but I'm going to shoot out a few of them to you so you're aware of this, and you can watch this later on. If you've gone through the daily walk as well, it would help you with this. But Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 46, uh, and he, he alludes to the entire time when they're going to be in Babylon. He says to them, be careful of the time when you will think to yourselves that these man-made idols, these human-made crafted images are your gods. They have no power. They know nothing of the present, nothing of the past, and nothing of the future. They are under your control because you created these little wooden articles, these golden artifacts. There is only one God and your faith must be inside that supreme God. There's a text that I do want you to find, it's in Amos chapter three, verse seven, and it's page 853, Amos chapter, chapter three, verse seven. And I think you need to go there because this is a phenomenal text that I think we often forget with prophecy as well. So in your Bibles in the pews, you can pull it out, page 853, Amos chapter three, verse seven. And this is what it says there. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. That's a verse that you should underline in your Bibles. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. Prophecy is there not to tell you the future, but that once the future is fulfilled, you know that God actually knew before it happened. 
and your trust in God is built. When you think that you've got to decode absolutely everything that God is saying before it takes place, you've misunderstood what the prophecy is there for. It is there to let you know that God always knew the secrets. He always knows where things are going to go. And he's letting you know in advance so that you don't feel discouraged when things don't work out the way you thought they were supposed to. And then in Exodus and Proverbs and Ezekiel, he also says this, no matter what side people take when it comes to understanding the truth, to comes to understanding Jesus, you are to love them. You are to embrace them. They may disagree with you, and that's okay, but you are to love them. Because prophecy builds trust in Jesus. Now, here's the dilemma that I faced. As I looked at this and as we get into Daniel 2, um, I realized that I categorize people, right? So I'm constantly thinking of how to describe the congregation, how to describe the community, how to describe everybody around here. And I thought, how do I describe the congregation today? How do I describe the people who are sitting down inside here, uh, especially those who are brand new to faith? Do I say they're brand new to faith? Do I refer to them as pre-Christian or, you know, uh, do I refer to them as non-Christian or unchristian? It's not very friendly, right? Not really nice terms. Do I refer to them as novice or beginner or, you know, neophyte, because it's Greek, you know, should I, should I do that? And here in the church, here at Boulder, what we've done is we've decided that we would refer to people as partners and members. A partner is anybody who comes to church here and says, I belong with the mission and vision, I love this church, I'm partnering with you. Some of you, and you will be team members of all sorts of ministries, but some of you also say, well, you know what, I actually want to be a, a leader of a team, I want to shape and vote and decide how things are going to go, you would become a member. So I started to scour the Bible, saying, where can I find the best phrase to describe the, the spectrum of people that are inside here today? You know, people who are brand new to reading the Bible, who, if I say, go to this book, you actually need the page number to find it, to people who are like, I've memorized the entire Bible, all three of you. You know, there are, there are variations that takes place inside there. So I found one in Galatians chapter 3, page 1076. Galatians chapter 3, and if you turn with me to what Apostle Paul has to share there, uh, I think this is really, really great. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, page 1076. And this is what he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He tells us straight up, and he uses the term sons because that's the way the male-dominated society was at the time, but then he goes into neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, and he describes all of this, we are the children of God. That's how the best way we could describe ourselves. Every single one of us is a child of God. Different levels of children, but we are all children of God. And it reminds me of this text that William Johnson said this at a One Project sermon in Australia, and he showed us this text in Luke 13. And I want you to go to Luke 13. Again, these are texts that I think you should underline in your Bible, page 967, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 16, and this is a great text, a really great insight into this. Luke chapter 13, verse 16. 
And ought not this woman, talking about uh, to, the, to the Pharisees here, about a woman who was, uh, who was in trouble here, said, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He, of course, the context of the story is that everybody is embraced inside here, and Jesus is welcoming everybody, including on the Sabbath day, I'm going to heal people. But what he does here is he refers to her, the daughter of Abraham. That's the only time that we have this in the entire New Testament. The only time in the Second Testament that it comes up saying daughter of Abraham, because always it was the son of Abraham. That was the greatest honor you could have. But Jesus says, you're a daughter of Abraham. He says, men and women, you are equal together. And equality is a huge issue that we are talking about in Boulder Church University. We're going to be doing that today, straight off the church, inside the sanctuary, if you're interested in joining us. Equality is a huge issue, but equality is not about congruency. Equality is about the value that God gives us. And God is the one who decides the value, and all of us are valuable. We're all equal in God's sight. So this brings us to our very first question that we have today. And I know you're probably thinking that this is a question you have every single day, but this is a question that I want inside your worship guide, question number one, and this is the question we're going to go through as we go through Daniel chapter two. What is God saying to you today? It's a question we should ask all the time, but today in particular, as you come to church, as you've taken time off, you've driven up here, you've made the sacrifice, you thought to yourself, let me go to church, let me be with community, let me open my Bible, let me hear what it is, what is God saying to you today? And how does God speak to you varies for so many people, right? So for some of us, you know, we listen to a song, we hear a lyric, we, we sit down and we have some refreshments outside and we enjoy the conversation and we hear the voice of God in community, we sit down with our friends, we go to a Bible study class and we dialogue about faith, we see a piece of art and we're just inspired with it. The kids right now, they're building like Daniel 2 statues out of Lego and they have a stone that they're gonna be building as well and they're gonna bring them all out here later on. They are tangibly trying to apply the story to their life. So whatever it is that God is speaking to you, he is speaking to you, but he speaks to you in different ways. And we have to wrestle through that because Daniel 2 is this, Jesus is coming back. I want you to embrace that. If you embrace that Jesus is coming back here, it's a sacred trust and a responsibility that we have. And we have to respond to that. And how we respond to that is inside the book of Daniel here that we go. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2. You'll stay there the whole time. There'll only be one time that I jumped you out of there, but basically Daniel chapter 2 verse 1. It says there, and this is on page 822. So remember, grab your Bibles, write in them, take them with you. But page 822, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. The second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. This is a young king. He hasn't been king long. Daniel, young guy, hasn't been there long either. They're both young. This guy, Nebuchadnezzar, falls asleep, and he wakes up thinking about this. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, but in the last 10 days, I don't know why, I have not been sleeping well, so I will go to sleep like a deep coma sleep, like you couldn't wake me if you tried to wake me. And then around two o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock at night or some random hour, I will just wake up and I'll be alert as if it's like 5.15 in the morning. And then I look at my watch and I think to myself, I have four hours, I need to go back to sleep because if I don't go back to sleep, now it's three hours, I have three hours, and I'm kind of talking myself back into sleep because I know that at 
there's no repentance at that point. I have to get up and I have to go and the day begins. And I'm wrestling through that. So sometimes what I'll do is, because I know that if I pick up Netflix at that point, I will be up until five and it will be a disaster. And at 5.15, the alarm will go off and I'll say, now I die today. This will be bad. So I pick up a really good book, like a commentary. And I read through a commentary. And as I read through the commentary, it's good because I'm like, I'm focusing on the text, it's all good. And then gradually I'm like, wow, that guy doesn't, oh man, he's going on a lot. All right. And I feel really comfortable when I go back to bed. But I have asked myself every day when that happens, why did I get up? What caused me to get up? What was I really thinking about? What made my mind agitated at that point? Like Nebuchadnezzar, there is something pretty serious. And in his time, more than today, because we struggle with what dreams mean and what interruptions to our dreams mean today, but back in his day, absolutely, if you had a dream and you couldn't remember it, or if you couldn't remember it, you knew the dream was some kind of omen or some kind of spiritual unction in your life. And Nebuchadnezzar says, this is serious. I need to understand what this dream means. So verse 2 says this, that the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, all some of them. In other words, an exhaustive list of every single person you could imagine. Come, 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 tell me what it is. And what happens is this funny conversation back and forth where Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me what the dream is. And they say, you tell us what the dream is. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, no, you tell me what the dream is and you tell me what it means. And they say, you're on drugs. I can't tell you what the dream is or the meaning of it. You have to tell me the dream that I will interpret it for you. And eventually, they admit, in verse 11 of Daniel chapter 2, says this, the thing that you ask, king, is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. This is beyond us. It's above our pay grade. We can't tell you what you thought about. We can only tell you what it means when you tell us what you actually said. Because in truth, only God would really know that. Well, the king's reaction, and uh, we will look at this next week in particular because his personality and character is kind of interesting. The king's reaction is in verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. This guy has a temper and he just rises so quickly there. And he demands that everybody, the kill squad, goes out to kill all the magicians, the enchanters, and all of them, right? So here's the question I have for you. As the kill squad is going out to go kill all these people, they arrive at Daniel's house. Daniel, right, he actually hasn't been in this conversation. So was he the first house they went to, or was he the last house they went to? And I kind of think that it was the first house, and the reason I believe it was the first house is because Daniel eventually calls all of them together and says, come and listen to what the king is going to say, right? But I'm pretty sure that what the, the guards did, the kill squad said, is, well, we've got to go kill somebody. Let's go get the lowest level first. Let's go find Daniel, the lowest level, and they go and approach Daniel. And Daniel's just hammered at this moment, and everything takes place. Look at these. I can't wait to see these, uh, these statues afterwards. There's one, actually, that looks taller than one of the kids. Um, it actually looks like it's falling already. That has to happen later in the story, so it'll be interesting what happens inside there, but that's pretty phenomenal stuff. So it does. It builds out entirely, and he's just like, Daniel says, this order is insane. So he goes and sees the king. He doesn't get permission. He goes and sees the king, and he tells the king, listen, I need more time to work out what this actually means. Give me more time. I am pretty sure, as Daniel had heroes himself, 
He had Jeremiah, he had Isaiah, he had Moses, and he had Abraham. He had all of these heroes that Daniel himself was becoming a hero to Esther later on. Because Esther's going to look back at these stories and say to herself, my goodness, who went before a king? Who actually had the courage to go before a king and has to go before a king without permission? Daniel did. Maybe I can do the same if I trust God inside there. I think we often underestimate how much our living example of life builds trust in other people. You know? The things that you do, the things that you act, the things that take courage, what they do for your kids, what they do for your community, what they do for your friends. When you say, I'm going to do something that nobody else is doing, it builds trust in the community. And Daniel understood this. He does this. He goes and prays. And he prays this prayer, I think in verse 17. He goes and tells his friends, hey, by the way, I'm, we need to pray right now. We're going to pray all night. And his friend's reaction in, chapter, in verse 17 is not like, Daniel, why did you do that? Now we're in the, you know, the, the focal point of the king. We will definitely all be killed first. They're like, yes, let's go pray about this. Because in the previous chapter, they learned already to trust Daniel because Daniel trusts God. And they're building their own trust all the way through inside here. Well, he prays all night, and uh, the verses that come up here is verse 20. I, I want you to read this. I want you to see this with me. I'm going to put them on the screens as well, but in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, because this prayer is pretty phenomenal. His response is pretty amazing. If you had just prayed to God, saying, God, I need you to be able to understand what's going on here. I need you to be able to help me understand what I'm supposed to be doing here. This would be the prayer and the response that he does. In fact, I would postulate this far. Daniel's question is not whether God exists. Daniel's question is whether God is engaged in our lives. Today, I think sometimes we have conversations with people where we presume that they believe the same God that we believe, that they understand that God exists, and we talk as if that's a given. But in truth, people don't even believe in God let alone believe in whether God is involved in our lives. So you have to live this life, and you do live this life, where you do believe that God is engaged, but that's what he's praying about. That's his presupposition, because he believes that God is real. And he says to him, God, I need you to tell me what is going to take place inside here. And as a result, this is what he says, verse 20. Daniel answered and said this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and you have made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. In his response, in his prayer of thanks, he's quoting other scripture as well. And in some of your Bibles, you'll have like a, a little center column that actually gives you these texts. There's one text. You've got to write this one down. You've got to underline the other one. It's Psalms 139, verses 11 and 12, page 580 in your Bible. Just Psalm 139. Don't lose Daniel 2. We're going to come straight back to it. But Psalms 139, verses 11 and 12. Because this is what the psalmist says here in Psalms. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. 
no matter what fear we have, no matter what struggles we're going through, and we know in this community here that there are people who've had surgery this week, there are people who are facing cancer treatments, there are people who are struggling with their marriages and their relationships and their parenting, there are kids who are struggling with their siblings and people struggling with their jobs and their life. God is saying inside all of this darkness, God knows what has taken place. He understands what is hidden inside there. And Daniel says, it was all dark. We could have all died the next day, but you have revealed this to us. And his trust in God is grown inside this moment because he's able to say, God, you are indeed engaged inside here. But as you read the story, as it continues down here, there's a plot twist that takes place. In verse 25, it says here, then Arik, this is back in Daniel chapter two, then Arik brought in Daniel before the king. Now Daniel goes through the proper protocol and he brings him before the king and in haste he said to him, I have found one amongst the exiles who can help you, O king. So he starts to take all the glory that he is the one who's actually saving Nebuchadnezzar and his dream and helping him understand this. And Daniel spends three times symbolizing the completeness, he goes three times saying, at different times in the prayer, directly to the king once, directly to the king twice, it is not me. God is the one who revealed these hidden things. I do not know these things. God is the only one who understands that. Then he recaps the dream for him in verses 31 to 35, and we'll come back to that later. Uh, and then the king, he starts to tell him what the king, the story means. So the, st- the story is basically this. He sees a statue, and he says that it's gold, head, and silver, and then it's bronze, and then it's iron, and then it has iron and clay mixed together, and then a stone cut out of absolutely nowhere appears, comes down, smashes this entire statue, those statues over there, we'll have to see them later, smashes the statue, and the entire world is filled with this mountain, and this entire thing takes place. And Daniel's like overwhelmed by this, but Nebuchadnezzar listens to the story, and Daniel says, I'm gonna tell you just as it is, You are the head of gold. And by the way, God gave you this power, and I want you to understand this. It comes from God, but you are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar's happy with this. He even uses the word next. He says, and everybody that comes after you, Nebuchadnezzar, is inferior to you. Nobody's gold anymore. They're silver, and they're bronze, and they're iron, and they're iron and clay. They're way inferior than you. What he doesn't imply at this point is is that they're stronger than Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because... Silver is definitely less valuable, but stronger than gold. And bronze, less valuable, but stronger. And iron, way stronger than gold, but less valuable. And so he doesn't tell him that. He just tells him straight up, I need you to know everything gets bad. After you, it gets bad. And then he ends with this incredible verse down at verse 46, uh, verse 45. And he ends this with a sentence. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Because he tells him that the statue is going to go away. Everything will go away. And a stone will come that is cut out of a mountain, out of somewhere unknown. And it will destroy this entire statue. Everything will be gone. And he uses two words in the story when he's recounting the dream. He uses the word stone and he uses the word chaff or wind in particular. And he says to them, listen, I want you to understand there are, this word stone is a powerful word for us. We understand this word stone. He says, because in the entire Bible, and if you go through the daily walk, you'll see this, God is referred to as a stone, a strength. The kingdom of God is built with this stone. God's altars are all built with this particular stone. God's commandments were built with this particular stone. The temple 
temple in Jerusalem were designed with the stone. In fact, the Messiah would become the cornerstone that would be rejected. And Jesus himself, and Luke says this, Jesus himself says, I am the stone that the builders have rejected. I am the cornerstone that they pushed aside. And we will sing about this in a few minutes because this is exactly the image that they understood. He is the Messiah. He is the one who's going to come and restore this world in a way that we'd never imagined. And the wind, they understood the wind straight away that it was the power of God. They understood the wind hovered over the waters, that creation, like the Holy Spirit. They understood the wind came and separated the waters when it came to Exodus. They understood that the wind was there when Elijah was claiming, saying, come and speak to me through the wind. Will it be through there? The power was present. And they understood that with the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3, he is like the wind. Nobody knows where he comes from or where he goes, but he has power to influence and change you. So he's using these two words all the way through. Daniel knows at least this much. I'm in Babylon right now. I'm in captivity right now. God is going to end all of this. I don't know how long it's going to take. He doesn't know that yet. That's in two, three weeks' time when we get to much later in his life where he has anxiety, where he starts to, his heart starts to race because he realizes there's a lot of time still ahead. But he's like, God is going to come and he will restore this world and I hold on to that. And that, for him, is lifting up Jesus. So when I think of prophecy, I'm inspired that I think my God explained to us 600 BC, all the past, the present, and the future. That's what he does. He's taken us on this journey from the past through the present to the future. And that's what prophecy is supposed to do, to build trust in Jesus, that you think to yourself, well, God knows. No matter how dark it is right now, no matter how hard it is right now, God knows, and he's with me from the past to the present to the future brings us to our final question, question number two, in your worship guide there. And this is a question that we have to wrestle through all the time. What does the second coming of Jesus then mean to us today? If you believe this, if you believe that the prophecies of Daniel here are true, that they imply, and they do have so much evidence to say that it has been on a journey, and as the weeks unfold, you'll see how the detail that it gets to is pretty darn amazing. But as it comes all the way through, you're saying to yourself, God knows all this stuff. What does it mean then? if Jesus is coming back soon, if this world is gonna be recreated, if Jesus is saying this is the way humanity should actually exist, what does that mean for us? Well, here at uh, Boulder Seventh Adventist Church, we wrestled as pastors, and I mentioned this once when we had all the pastors up here, where we said that we would choose, we would choose Boulder, and what would we say when we choose Boulder? And let me show you what the, the question is that we have for you as well, is how you would choose Boulder. So the four of us sat down and wrestled through this, and we have this email address, Choose at boulder.church, really easy for you to remember, easy for you to be able to write. Why would you choose this church? Why would you choose this church? What would need to take place or what does take place that you choose this church? We've had quite a few responses. We'd love to hear more of that. But as we wrote through all of our ones, and I'll come up to the next one here, you'll notice that the very last one that we wrote here is this. This church believes that the soon coming of Jesus affects the choices we make every day. We do believe that because Jesus is coming back, it affects the choices that we make every day. We don't have an eternity ahead of us. We have a short lifespan, and with that lifespan, every moment counts, and God wants us to take that seriously. So, I wrote down some statements that I think that would be applicable to us, and I want you to read them with me. And this is what we should be doing if we believe that Jesus is coming back soon. So, as you read them with me, you'll understand a little bit of what we're saying here. We should, first one here, be actively 
working towards healing and restoring justice and love in our communities. That was really great how you read that with me. I really appreciate that. So let's try that one more time. I'm gonna read it with you. That means you have to use your vocal cords. I know some of you are miming and explaining everything, but I really, I wanna hear this. We should be actively working towards healing and restoring justice and love in our communities. That has to happen. We should embrace the cross and celebrate the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of heaven is yet to come. While we know that Jesus is coming, there are values right now that actually affect who we are today. We should have our church be a center of influence that changes our lives, changes our lives and those around us. We should invest in our children and honor the elderly in our community. Sometimes we focus just on this group, but there is this family that actually belongs to this church here. We should live a life of beauty in anticipation of Jesus, looking for all that is beautiful around us. We should create life moments each day and treasure the breath we have. Memorize every moment that you can when you find them and see them in conversations, sear them into your mind. We should write poetry and books and music and lyrics that inspire honest conversation. There are no questions we can't ask. We should advance good through our art and our vocations with the jobs that we do that God has called us to. We should express hope in our very actions that Jesus presents to us each and every single day. This is what we should be doing all the time. And this is what it means to be able to believe that Jesus is coming back. In fact, what I really hope that we will do is that we'll move from apathy to passion. What I really hope is that we'll move from darkness to light. And what I really hope for is that we'll move from marginal to leader. And that's what I'm calling you today to do. I'm going to ask you to take out your worship guides and tear off your connect cards right now. And uh, with that connect card, I'm going to ask you to have the courage to put your name on that connect card right now. And there's a pen in front of you. You can... It's perforated, it's really easy to tear away. And as you write inside that connect card here, you put your name on the other side here, I'm gonna be asking you to write down what God is saying to you today. And if you have the courage, then you're gonna take that connect card and you're gonna put it inside the offering altars that are all around the sanctuary here. In fact, actually, we were gonna do that, but I can't find any of them. So if we could have some of the deacons actually take care of putting the offering altars out, that'd be phenomenal, it will be out. Uh, this is for you to put your tithing offerings in and also to put your connect cards inside there. And inside those connect cards, I want you to be able to articulate what it is that God is talking to you today. What is it that you could actually do? What is it that God has said to you of all the things in your life, these are things that actually I could do. When I was a kid, um, my little church in Southeast London, there was a lady there called Ruth. And Ruth was uh, an Australian lady who, who came to this church and she was pretty phenomenal lady. She would open our homes up to us on Friday and Saturdays to her house, and she would encourage people just to come and connect with everybody, right? So as kids, as young people, we were able to go to her house, and we had a, a room there with, you know, white carpet that was like in the 70s, you know, shag, thick, heavy carpet, right? So you take your shoes off, you go inside there. We could pray inside that room there, but we would have food and fellowship and fun. It was phenomenal. And I remember those memories of what Ruth did. And as a result of all that she did, when I was older and when Becky and I first got married and we were still students at the time, uh, we decided to, with the local church, to volunteer, as you do as well, to become a youth leader of the church at the time. 
And, uh, and so we opened our house, our little uh, apartment, our flat, and we invited the kids to come on Friday nights. They would bring a drink and we'd provide all the food and the dialogue would take place inside there every single Friday night. And boy, when I came out of that corridor, you know, uh, to get the kids to leave at that point there, all their shoes were all over the place and the smell, oh my goodness, from teenagers and all their shoes was astronomical. It was just a gas mask moment, you know, just to be able to survive out there. But inside the apartment, um, we had some of the best life-transforming conversations that I ever had in my life. We would go until 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, and then I'd bundle all these kids into cars. Parents would come pick up some. I'd illegally take like 30, 40 kids in the car and, and drive them around and drop them off home so we could be at church the next morning and stuff. It was, this is okay, it was years ago. Now it's not allowed, so you wouldn't do that anymore. But I re have some of the best moments of my life building trust with myself and with them, learning about them, them learning about me. To this day, I am friends with nearly all of these kids. They're now married and older and got kids. That makes me feel ancient. <laughs> but, but I will never forget it. And I will never trade in those two, three years. Being a volunteer in a church, being a team member and being a leader in this church here is transformative to your own life and to others. We're not looking for teachers who are gonna teach all our kids in Bible study classes to fill in a slot. Ah, because we need to fill it in, I'll go volunteer. We're looking for teachers who actually love kids, who feel like this is my sacrifice and this is my time and this is what I will do. We're not looking for deacons who will just come here to the church and, and just open the building up and walk through and say, right's done, go sleep on a couch somewhere. We're looking for a diaconate who come through here and say, this is the building where sacred space will take place and God will have an encounter with us. And what can I do to make this real? What can I do to assist in this? What can I do to make sure that people as they walk through the doors are welcome for the very first time and have a connection with that? We're not looking for people to get up here and sing for the first time as if they're performing a piece of music for some kind of recital. We're looking for people who are gonna come up here and give the heart of worship and say, this is actually me giving this to God. Not about where I am in the service, actually about worshiping God. We're not looking for people who are just gonna say, I'm gonna sit on a committee and I'm gonna give all my wisdom, but I won't carry any work. We're looking for people to actually step up. And every single person here has the ability to do that. And that's what you can do in your Connect card. You can say, hey, my name is, and this is what I'm interested in doing. And if you don't know what it is that you can do, then put a big question mark by there, and we will call you tonight. You have to leave your telephone number. If you don't, that basically means you have a question mark, you don't want us to contact you, and you need to go see a therapist. Because here's the truth. Without you, Without us together, we don't move the mission. We can talk here about Daniel 2 until Jesus comes back. But if we're not living what Jesus called us to, which is that he will return, and his return means that I have to live a different life, then you have to step up. You can't just look around and say, they'll do this, they'll take care of this. All of us have to step up. And together, all of us stepping up, we can make this move. We can make the mission that God has called us to move, and we can respond to Him. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray a blessing on your life, and then we're going to sing as a response. And I think that uh, I want you to, in particular to think about the words that we sing, 
because the words that we sing are words that actually are driving everything that Daniel was talking about today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you, God, for being with us. I thank you, God, for talking to us in our communities, in our homes, in our work, in our vocation, in our life. God, I want to be able to be a follower of you, 100% be right there. But God, I need you to give me the strength to be able to step up and to do that. Allow me to rejiggle my entire life and to basically place the time that this needs, you need in our life. Because when you are in my life, Lord, I know that I am a better person. God, give me the courage to do that. May your spirit lead me all the way through. In Jesus' precious name, amen.